the thing I like to tell people is I've never met anyone that regretted taking time off. <laughs> you know, I've met people that regretted not taking time off. There are also people that do go straight through and they know exactly what they want and that works for them. And that's fine. But, you know, I've never met anybody that took a few years off and said, wow, I really wish I'd gotten my MD two years earlier. On the contrary, you know, having that life experience and flailing a little bit, not in the bad sense of the word, but giving yourself a chance to kind of experience things and make sure that what you're choosing is right, I think is so important. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's my pleasure to have you with us today as I talk to Professor Emily Finn. It's pretty interesting. Emily is a new professor at Dartmouth, just started about a year ago, give or take, and she is a brain scientist. And, you know, those of you that listened last week to my episode in the SIDCast on Bernie Madoff, it was Jim Campbell who wrote the book about Bernie Madoff. You listen to that and you think about what's going on in the brain of Bernie Madoff. How do people become these criminals? Well, Emily Finn doesn't look at Bernie Madoff, but she does look at and think about and do some really cool research on how our brains are wired and why and what's unique and particular about that. And when I heard she was coming to Dartmouth from Yale, where she completed her PhD in neuroscience and did her postdoc training as well, the National Institute of Mental Health, I thought she's really interesting. And I like to bring in some different professors here and there, different academics in areas that I really know nothing about, and just explore and talk with her on things that I think everyone's going to be interested in. I know that I'm really interested in. You know, we don't go into tremendous detail in science, but we do get into tremendous detail in the ideas, but also on Emily and who she is and why she ended up doing what she's doing. So she's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at Dartmouth. She actually has a BA in linguistics, also from Yale, which is interesting. We do talk about that pathway that she has followed. She's particularly interested in how and why, given the same experience, different people arrive at different conclusions. She was recently named a rising star by the Association of Psychological Science, and her work has been featured actually all over the place. New York Times, BBC, NBC, PBS, CBS, Scientific American, Discovered and Wired, and she's really at the earliest stages of her career. And to see the impact she's already having and the relevance of the work she's already doing, it's really exciting for me to see and I know for so many of her colleagues as well. So three things to talk about, to highlight for you about this episode with Emily that I think are going to be intriguing. First, the process of scientific discovery. I mean, I love this, right? It's all about curiosity. When you talk to scientists, when you talk to academics, and you ask them what motivates them, curiosity is always at the beginning of the answer to that question. If it's not there, I get nervous. And it's absolutely the case with Emily. Actually, you know, if you think about all the research on COVID and the vaccines that's gone on for the last couple of years, that's based on 10 years and longer research by others who are motivated by curiosity. 
long before we knew we had to come up with RNA-based vaccines. And I want to be able to convey, and actually Emily conveys very well, the excitement of scientific discovery. And I live that myself in a very different way. I don't do the type of science in labs that Emily does. I'm much more of a social scientist when you get right down to it and try to understand leadership. But I remember, I especially used to do a lot of quantitative research. And I remember when I do some analysis and you get back the results on your screen, on your desktop. This is before I was using a laptop, so I'm going back a few years. And you're seeing the significance level. In other words, how important is the result that you found? Is it unusual or is it not? Can it be differentiated from mere chance or not? And when you see the number that says, this is really different than what we might expect by mere chance, there's something here. The excitement, the adrenaline rush is great. And we talk about that, and it's important to share that. And I know the vast, vast, vast majority of people listening to the SITCAST are not scientists, they're not social scientists, you're doing whatever you're doing. But I hope that listening to Emily will generate or regenerate a bit more of that sense of curiosity that I think we all have to have in whatever job we do, whatever career that we're involved in. I think it's just so central and fun. Number two, this is what got Emily a lot of publicity in the mainstream press. I know I'm going to oversimplify because I've and I didn't do the research, but here's how I'm going to put it. Our brains are like fingerprints. In fact, our brains are like fingerprints because we have unique profiles of how our brains model and adjust and think about things. And that these profiles, let's call it, these profiles of how our brain works are stable and they're reliable in the same person. And this is Emily saying, no matter if it's today or tomorrow, or no matter what your brain is doing, when we're actually scanning you, there's tremendous stability in what we're seeing for you yourself, for each of you as a listener, for me, for Emily, for anyone else, there's tremendous consistency to us and that is our fingerprint and that we have this fingerprint that's in our brains. Isn't that kind of crazy? Crazy cool is what that is. And Emily, you know, she explains it a lot better than I'm explaining it right now, but I just want to give you the highlight. Basically, different people tend to have their own particular patterns of brain functional connectivity. And there's lots of questions that emerge from that that Emily's research is involved with. How stable are these profiles over a period of months or years? And can they change because of illness or aging? Or can we learn how to change those profiles to be able to do more things than we might otherwise have? I mean, there's so many questions that are part of a long research agenda for Emily. But the headline is brain connectivity is like a fingerprint unique to each individual. And that is a hate to say it, mind-blowing type of idea. And then number three, what can you do with all of this? That's where Emily really is especially passionate about thinking about how some of this research on brain profiles could be used in personalized medicine as a way to maybe customize interventions and even therapies for people based on their individual biology, which is, I think, not I think, but I'm observing, is the direction in which so much science is going. With all the work around gene editing and CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna, who won a Nobel Prize for her work on CRISPR, and not that long ago, Walter Isaacson wrote a book about Jennifer Doudna called The Code Breaker, which is a great book I highly recommend. And we know from a lot of uh, research on genes and on our DNA that there has been a movement, there is a movement, and it's ongoing, and it's unbelievable to think about whether it's actually going to come to life in a way that's practical and that will not cost an arm and a leg for interventions, for medicines, but that we could be treated truly as individuals because of our genetic profile and to pick up on Professor Emily Finn's perspective, our even potentially our brain connectivity pattern or profile. 
I mean, that's truly a change the world type of set of ideas. I mean, the idea that the COVID vaccine that you have might be slightly different than the COVID vaccine I might have because I have a different genetic profile than you. We're obviously not there. We're not close to there. Well, I shouldn't say if we're not close to there, but we're definitely not there. But that's what the potential is. And I mean, isn't that exciting? Isn't that great? I really get turned on thinking about this and then talking to, you know, younger professor, scientist that is so into it and learning and advancing science. And it's just so interesting to talk to because she has a lot of other interests in her journey, her pathway, Emily Finn's pathway to become a brain scientist took a few twists and turns like it does for lots of others. And that's really interesting as well. So pull up a chair and get into the SIDCAST room with Professor Emily Finn. Welcome to the SIDCAST. It's Sid Finkelstein. And it's a real pleasure today to have as my guest, Professor Emily Finn. Hi, Emily. Hi, Sid. It's good to have you with us. You're a new professor at Dartmouth. Is it one year now, more or less, that you've been on campus and part of the faculty? Just about a year. Yep. I started in July 2020. July 2020. Before that, you were at Yale for your PhD, or did you do a postdoc somewhere in between? Immediately prior to Dartmouth, I was at the National Institute of Mental Health for my postdoc. And prior to that, I was at Yale for my PhD. So how does that work? Because as you know, I have a really diverse audience, all sorts of people. They're all kind of interesting and smart, but different backgrounds. So what's a postdoc and how long is it? And how important is it? That's a great question. And it's a moving target. A postdoc is typically a few years following your PhD, especially in STEM fields. Uh, It's become increasingly common to do another training step, essentially, where you're a working scientist, but you still have a principal investigator or a mentor, an advisor who's funding you in some cases or giving you guidance, giving you resources to do a few more studies and to kind of potentially expand into a new research area and get a little bit more training before you launch into a fully independent position. So not all fields have them. Not everybody does them. It can be a nice opportunity to get a little bit more training and get a new perspective on your field before you launch into your independent career. These days, they're lasting longer and longer because the academic job market is so difficult. So they used to be, you know, one to two years, and now they're kind of creeping up to three to five years and longer in some cases. So, Wow, longer than five (laughs) years. If you start to think about it, you don't want to, but if you start to think about it and add up all the years from graduate school, including PhD, because some people have a master's degree along the way, and then postdoc, and then getting, you know, landing a good faculty job, and then the years until tenure, I don't know that the average person realizes just what the dedication is to get there, because you look at tenured professors at universities, especially, you know, top universities, sure looks good, but I mean, it's easily a 15-year, for many people, right, a 15-year effort to get there. Absolutely. And there's a tension, I think, between postdocs are often referred to as trainees in the same way that PhD students are referred to as trainees and, you know, sort of drawing the line between when you're no longer in training and when you're considered an active scientist in your own right. You know, I mean, I think even as a PhD student, you're the one on the front lines actually doing the science and doing the work. And so there's sort of a blurry line between being a student and being a practitioner. And so the training aspect is an important aspect, but it's also important to recognize that, you know, yeah, these people in some cases have already had six to eight years of training. They are already masters of their craft and they need an opportunity to go a little bit further before they're ready for that faculty position. You're raising a really interesting question because there's analogies across lots of other careers. You know, people in business, you're working, you're a practitioner, you're getting it, but to have real responsibility, to have the confidence of the people around you, you have to earn it, but you also have to take it, if you know what I mean. You're nodding your head. People can't see that, but that's what you're doing. Absolutely, and I'm curi- yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about how that journey 
And, you know, kind of just personally how you thought about managing your career and establishing yourself as this independent researcher and if you had to fight hard for that. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that's something that not a lot of people think about at the outset. Certainly I didn't. I mean, our field, as you know, academia tends to be, you know, especially in the sciences and in STEM fields, it's a really strong apprenticeship model, which when it goes well is great. When it goes poorly can be, you know, really difficult, especially for students, because essentially when you come into a PhD program, in most cases, a lot of your professional fate is kind of controlled in one way or another by your mentor or your PI, as we call them, your principal investigator. And so if the relationship is a good one, that person is really helping you and guiding you through and influencing you in a lot of ways. But then at some point, you do have to kind of carve out your own identity and your own niche so that when it comes time to go on the crazy academic job market, you can convince people that you have an identity that's distinct from your advisor. You know, that's kind of taking the good parts of their world and their expertise and their approach, but putting your own spin on it. And when and how you start to do that is there's not strong guidelines for that. And it can be really different depending on the individual, depending on the advisor. It's something that I think doesn't get talked about as much as it should. (laughs) So even for me, and even, you know, studying business and related, very practical oriented areas, field-based areas, hardly anyone ever talked about career management, let's call it. And I suspect in a lot of not just science-based areas, but where deep expertise is needed. And so that could include a lot of life sciences, IT and academia, maybe engineering, maybe medicine. You spend all your time becoming the expert And it's not easy to do that. And sometimes you forget or don't even know that you have to actually advocate for yourself. You're in an organization in the same way that anyone working, someone working at Amazon in a managerial job, very different than what you and I might do, but you're in an organization. And you still have to figure out how to navigate your way through, how to manage up, how to do all the kind of things that, you know, are really bread and butter fundamental things. And I don't think there's much training for any of that, as you say. I do know from my own students, so MBA students average age 28 or 30, we talk about it in the class, they have this content knowledge about, you know, whatever their area is, if it's finance or marketing or what have you. But they spend a lot of time thinking about this navigation thing, how to present yourself, how to interact, how to build relationships with people at work. I feel like that is a generalized weak spot for many people because we don't emphasize it. It's so important. And we often lament the fact that in the sciences, we don't get any formal training in management, in leadership, in career development. There's sort of one-off workshops that we can go to and things like that. But at no point in our formal training do we learn best practices in terms of how to be strategic in your own career, how to mentor other people, how to manage other people how to lead projects, which is basically what we do all day. So you're a leader, you're a manager and a leader. You've got a team, you've got a lab, and you were trained as the individual contributor part of another team. I guess you learn a little bit by watching your own advisors over time and heads of other labs you've been part of. But that's a pretty small sample size to base your own management skills on. Exactly. Yeah. And because the way this particular track tends to work, I mean, you come in as a PhD student, you have one advisor, typically, I mean, maybe you're working in a co-advised situation where you have, Mm -hmm. you know, two mentors or something like that, or you have a committee that you talk to about your thesis, but by and large, you know, it's one person that you're working with for five to six years. And if you do a postdoc, you know, that's one more individual, but most people have an N of two, (laughs) you know, when they start their own position and it's challenging because everyone has their own style and you have to find your own style. But 
we're not really trained in how to think through these things. And I think with any career, you know, as you say, you get to a point where you do switch from being the practitioner to the manager, so to speak. I think in academia, it is a particularly steep step. (laughs) There's not a lot of intermediate stages, you know, it's Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. one day you're a postdoc and you're on the front lines actually doing the work. And then the next day you become a faculty member and you have this team of people and you know, you have very little time to actually do any of the work yourself. And it's all about training other people and mentoring other people about how to do it. So it's been a fun transition, but a challenging one. Yeah. Let's go back even earlier. What got you interested in science? Were you always interested as a kid in science or something came up in school that said, wow, this is cool or what? Where did this come from? Yeah, I was actually not much of a science person growing up, to be honest. I did have good science teachers in high school, but I was always more interested in language. I was really, really interested in languages when I was younger. I taught myself a bunch of French. I went to France a few times in the summer during high school and things like that. I was like a huge language nerd started teaching myself Spanish, took advantage of the German program in my high school, which was new at that time. So I just couldn't get enough of that. And then when I got to college, I wasn't sure what I would major in. I had sort of put on my application linguistics because I saw that you could count lots of language credits towards that major as opposed to having to pick a single language to major in. So I did actually end up majoring in linguistics, but along the way I took a class to fulfill a science requirement that was called Introduction to the Human Brain. And originally I just went in thinking, okay, I need to do my science, but I was totally fascinated by it. I got really, really interested in it and briefly considered double majoring with neurobiology, but I knew I didn't want to go to med school and that was set up kind of more for pre-med majors. So I stuck with the linguistics, but I ended up doing a senior thesis on sentence processing in the brain. And that was my first exposure to functional MRI, which is the neuroimaging technology that I use these days. So I kind of came in through the back end based on my interest in language, but of course, you know, language is processed in the brain. It's understood and produced by the brain. So that's kind of how I first got into it. And then it was a little bit more circuitous. I didn't go straight to grad school. I took a few years off, but I came back around and here I am. So And here you are. It's actually not that big a stretch in a way to think about language in the context of the brain, as you say, a backdoor entry. It's also very interesting when you go to university, you get take all these courses and I'm sure plenty of young people complain about that. I don't have any interest in that. But then, you know, you get your story. And I think I've heard a version of that story a lot over the years. And you get turned on to a topic that you probably didn't even know or barely knew existed. Next thing you know, it becomes a life's work. So you took a a little bit of a circular route, you were saying. So after school, what did you do after college? So after college, actually the semester immediately after I graduated, I stayed on as a research assistant and I was wrapping up some of the work we were doing with our thesis. But as often happens in science, the honeymoon period kind of ended. And so the results I was working on for my thesis were really interesting and we got kind of lucky in a lot of ways. And then I stayed on for a semester and as is want to happen in science, things got more challenging and things were messier and I got a little bit disillusioned. I had applied to PhD programs that year actually, but I hadn't studied abroad in college and I really wanted to get an international experience. So I was planning to go abroad for about six months before coming back and starting a PhD program. I ended up going to Peru where I worked for a coffee company. So this was totally unrelated to science. It was supposed to be about a six month stint in between applying to grad school and going to grad school. But I sort of ended up a little bit disillusioned and I tried to defer my grad school acceptance, which they wouldn't let me do. So I ended up declining and staying in Peru for about a year and a half. And then at one point I did start to miss science, but I've also always loved to write. And so at that point I got a job at MIT actually in their news office where I was helping write press releases and helping craft their homepage. So kind of translating science for a lay audience and writing popular articles, which was a lot of fun. 
uh, and I learned a lot there. But eventually, you know, after about a year of that, I call it my gateway drug back into science, essentially, because (laughs) instead of being the one writing about the science, I realized that I did actually want to be the one doing the science. You know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to get back to it. And so at that point, I reapplied and I was lucky enough that they took me back. So that's a really interesting story. I didn't know that. First of all, I'm a mega coffee nerd, so we're bonding on that one right now. Got my Uh, cup right here. (laughs) Yeah, I had my first espresso this morning, and maybe after we finish chatting, I'll have another one. There's a science to coffee as well, obviously, to any agriculture product. I don't know whether you follow, this is a total aside, (laughs) but I don't know whether you follow the coffee business very much since coming back, or you're just a coffee aficionado and just enjoy the coffee, but it's exploded as a business, not just Starbucks, although obviously they're the biggest player, but it's become actually a big thing in private equity and venture capital, hundreds of millions of dollars going into coffee businesses. And I find it just fascinating how from a business point of view, coffee business is being monetized at a level that no one ever dreamed of. And this is all the third wave kind of cool coffee shops, the blue bottles and the stump towns and intelligentsias and all of the others. Yeah, no, it really is a fascinating industry. This was about 10 years ago now since I worked for this company, but I found it so interesting. I mean, I just had no idea until I started working there. And this was a company that was pretty interesting in that they're a for-profit company. They're headquartered in the U.S., but they have a number of supply-side offices in producer countries that are registered nonprofits in those countries. And so they actually are working with farmers to elevate the quality of their coffee so that they can sell it at those higher price points. So they get grants and do a lot of stuff to try to develop infrastructure and help farmers understand, you know, how to elevate the quality. And they bring in roasters, they sort of create partnerships between roasters in the US and Canada and these developing countries. So I learned a lot. (laughs) Very different from what I'm doing now. But Now, I guess I drink a lot of coffee to fuel the neuroscience. (laughs) That's the link. So there's two things. First on the MIT thing. So you were in the business of communicating research ideas, scientific ideas to the public. That has got to be a big advantage in what you do today. Because as you may have noticed over the years, not every scientist is particularly good at communicating what they figured out to a lay audience. And the ideas are, in many cases, extremely important, certainly extremely interesting, and you know, getting opportunities for funding and other benefits are important. So you, you kind of maybe had a bit of that innate skill from language skills or what have you, or writing skills, but I think that was a really good practice. I don't know whether you find ever looking back at those days and saying, you know, I learned something that was useful for me now or not. Uh, I mean, did you find that useful in terms of communicating ideas? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I was drawn to that type of job in the first place because I have always liked to write and like to communicate. And I think I didn't appreciate just how much of a scientist's job is writing, (laughs) you know, writing papers, (laughs) writing grants. And actually, the further you get, the more and more it's about communicating the science rather than actually doing the science. And, you know, even communicating in specialized journal articles, which is a lot of what I write these days, everyone appreciates good, concise writing. You know, I think like sometimes science writing, it's it's a bad reputation because there's so much jargon and there's so much passive voice. And, you know, these articles seem unreadable to a lay public. But I think there's a lot of benefit in being able to communicate clearly and being able to see the big picture. And that's true no matter who your audience is, even if your audience is highly specialized. So I think the training and the practice of communicating to the general public certainly helped. And the thing I always found funny about my time at MIT, so at that point, you know, I hadn't done my PhD yet, but I did have, you know, this background in neuroscience and linguistics from undergrad. And 
One thing I always found was that my articles about neuroscience, I think, were actually the worst because I was least able to put myself in the shoes of someone that didn't have any background on the topic, you know, whereas when I would go and interview uh, the physicists or the geologists or, you know, the astronomy people, you know, that I could just say, you know, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. I don't know anything about this, whereas... When I would go interview the people in the brain and cognitive sciences department, I would just want to talk to them in more and more detail because I was just so genuinely fascinated. And so I think those were the articles that I struggled most to write because I couldn't sort of decouple my own perspective on it and, and yeah, communicate yeah. it in lay terms. That's really funny and completely believable. Sometimes at different academy or conferences, I do some seminars or just even informally on writing, academic writing. And it's usually a big eye-opener, especially for junior faculty, because I tell them you're telling a story, just like anything in writing, you're telling a story. And thinking about the flow and the development of that argument, independent of the actual scientific, or in my case, social scientific findings, is really, really important. It sounds like you have a bit of a knack for that from your own experience in the background. The other thing I wanted to highlight is this kind of detour for a coffee and MIT and everything. We have a lot of students at Dartmouth and a lot of students young people in a lot of places that are in such a hurry. I don't know if you've already seen that or not, but they're in such a hurry to go to next step, next step, and keep moving up. And I don't know whether that's ever going to change for the vast majority of people because they're extremely high achievers and they're kind of wired that way. But it's not necessarily the best thing to do. It's actually not a bad idea to live a little bit and experience things. And why be in such an incredible hurry? You know, a few years ago, not that long ago, maybe three years ago, I'm going to guess, one of the commencement speakers the valedictorian from Dartmouth. I think there were four of them. And one of them said during his time at Dartmouth, he was just so focused on getting top grades and going as fast as he can, doing lab work and other things and whatever. And he finished a term early. And in that last term, he just kind of experienced life in Dartmouth by just hanging out, going to some classes, but he didn't have to take any real classes. And then spending time with people and tutoring people and other things. And he realized what he had missed by going through this breakneck speed through the first three and a half years or slightly more than that, which is really kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, so you're a good role model, I think, for people in that respect. You don't have to be at a breakneck speed. In fact, there are many disadvantages to it. I don't know if the 22-year-old is going to buy that, but I certainly do. I completely agree. I've given a lot of solicited and unsolicited advice about this <laughs> over the last few years. And, you know, I took three years off, which even in retrospect doesn't even seem that long, although at the time, you know, it was kind of my parents were a little bit like, well, what are you doing? And, you know, my friends were already off to med school or law school or Wall Street or whatever. So it did kind of feel like a little bit of a leap even at the time. But but looking back, I'm not sure I would have made it through my PhD, to be honest. I mean, it's hard. There's times that, you know, you really question whether this is what you want to be doing. And I think the fact that I got to explore some other interests in international development and in science communication and, you know, it's kind of like they say, if you love something, let it go, right? So I let science go, and then I came back to it. And I think that gave me the confidence that mm-hmm. it really was right for me to persist, you know, even through the difficult times that are inevitable when you do a PhD. So the thing I like to tell people is I've never met anyone that regretted taking time off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've met people that regretted not taking time off. There are also people that do go straight through and they know exactly what they want and that works for them. And that's fine. But, you know, I've never met anybody that took a few years off and said, wow, I really wish I'd gotten my MD two years earlier, you know, once they're, you know, mid-career. On the contrary, you know, having that life experience and flailing a little bit, (laughs) not in the bad sense of the word, but giving yourself a chance to kind of experience things and make sure that what you're choosing is right, I think is so important. Well, the flailing occurs to all of us at various times. And 
It's not the worst thing to have a little bit of practice. <laughs> when you're younger, you can bounce back from anything. The other thing is I've done now are about 100 episodes of this podcast. And this issue we're talking about comes up, you know, the people I have on podcasts come from every walk of life. Very few are really academics or scientists. And this idea of following a career path, the vast majority of people have a kind of a zigzag path. They do this, they do that. And they're all extremely accomplished in whatever they are. Even, you know, people that have had a couple of episodes with people still in their 20s that are in the arts are very successful, but they try different things. They're willing to experiment, not willing to experiment. They love it. They learn from that. And I'm a big fan of that. And even in academia, even if you stay as an academic, as I have for a long time now, you can still be extremely creative and zig and zag and try new things. Doing a podcast, for example, has nothing to do with research. Although, actually, I may end up writing a book on what I'm learning from all these conversations. But it's different. And doing all kinds of other things as well. Anyways, let's get to your science. Because what I've read about it, it's kind of unbelievable what you have found. And I want to understand it. And I want all of our listeners to understand it. It's this fingerprint word. That's the word that got me, the fingerprint. That there is something in our, you'll correct my language, but there's something in our brain connectivity that is unique to each individual, almost like a fingerprint, and that we can identify such a thing, number one. Number two, study, as you have, some of the implications or consequences or covariates of that kind of unique fingerprint. Is that kind of in a rough way accurate? Yeah. Kind of walk us through this logic. Yeah, that was a great summary to make sure everyone's on the same page. So the technology that I use and many other people use to study brain function is called functional MRI. So it's very similar to, you know, when you would go get an MRI for medical reasons. But instead of a single three-dimensional picture of the brain, we actually get a series of pictures. We get a time series that allows us to see when certain regions in the brain are more versus less active. So we're kind of measuring people as they're lying in the scanner. Sometimes we give them a task to do, sometimes we just have them lie there quietly and do nothing at all. But we're getting signals, essentially like activity levels from basically the entire brain at once carved up into different regions. And so typically the way people worked with this data was they would look for certain local changes and responses to some tasks. So I show you a picture of a face and I look to see which brain regions become more active in response to that. The analyses that we were doing, in contrast to that, we weren't necessarily looking at how active individual regions were at any given time, but we were looking at how different pairs of regions tended to be active together. So correlated patterns of activity between different pairs of regions across the brain. So you go pair by pair. How many regions are there in the first place? Well, that's a good empirical question. So we often choose an atlas to use, essentially. So we're carving the brain up into a predefined set of regions. In that first study, we were using an atlas with 268 regions. That's really interesting in and of itself. I hadn't thought about it that way. So people in neuroscience, to some extent, maybe less so now, I don't know, but you're explorers of the brain where parts of the brain haven't really been explored yet. I don't know if that's true. Maybe every part has, but the connectivity is at least a second level beyond just saying, okay, here's where you know Asia is and here's where South America is and these are where the regions are. But there's not a generally accepted map yet, an atlas? There are many different possible atlases depending on your goal. I guess the best analogy is sort of, you know, if you think about the globe or a map essentially of the whole world, with technology like fMRI, we can see the whole brain at once. So we get a whole picture of it and the question is sort of what are the meaningful units that we want to carve that into? And it can depend on your goals. So 
you know, you can think of a map that you break down at the level of countries, and that's going to give you a pretty macro scale view, or you could break it down at the level of geographical features. So, you know, you don't care about national boundaries, you care about, you know, where are the mountains, where's the ocean, you know, where are the grasslands and things like that. Or you, if you want to get more granular, maybe you carve it up into states or counties or provinces or, you know, the equivalent of other districts in other countries. And so you can kind of get more or less granular, you can draw the lines based on different types of features. And so there's not necessarily a single brain atlas that's appropriate for all of the types of questions you might want to ask. You want to kind of choose one that's going to let you work at the level that you're interested in. Yeah, that's a great explanation. So back to the pairs. So whichever way you decide to create the atlas you're interested in, you have various units. And so a pair is two units together. When you do this mapping, is it pair by pair and then kind of aggregating it up in some way? Or do you look at, say, three or four or 10, I'll say, regions, for want of a better term, or cities or, or mountaintops? And do you get different results when you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I should say there's a lot of ways to do this. So I'll talk about the approach that I've used while acknowledging that other people do this differently. And there's not necessarily a single unique valid way of doing this. But we use this atlas that has 268 regions. You could certainly have fewer regions. You could certainly have more regions. But this is kind of a happy medium, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. what we do is we actually calculate all of the possible pairs of connections between those regions. So if you think of it like a matrix where we have, you know, regions on both axes of the matrix and then each entry in the matrix tells us the first row and the second column. It's sort of, you know, how correlated, you know, the first region is to the second region and so on and so forth. So we actually get a whole matrix that's, in our case, 268 by 268, which is about 35,000 unique pairwise numbers. So we basically get a vector of length 35,000 where every individual number is telling us how correlated is the activity between a given pair of regions. Does it matter what direction that connectivity goes from A to B or B to A? Is it the same? So that's the rub actually with our technology is that we can't necessarily tell. So we call these connections, but these are based on functional data, not structural data. And so the difference there would be we don't necessarily know that there's a direct physical connection between these two brain regions. There probably is in many cases, but we're inferring connectivity based on the functional signals. So I guess a good analogy for this would be If you think about a map that has highways on it, there's a structural connection between two cities, so to speak, if there's a highway that connects them. Even if there's a highway, you don't necessarily know how much traffic is on that highway. And even if there's not a highway, I guess maybe you could get between two cities in some other way, like with a plane or with a bicycle or some other. So the structure and the function are related, but they're not necessarily the same and they give us different information. And so when we talk about functional connectivity, it's kind of a misnomer in some ways. It's a term that's caught on in the field. But really what we mean is just that the activity in two regions tends to fluctuate together. So when one region is high, the other region is high. And then when one is low, the other is low as well. So We don't necessarily know if one region is directly influencing the other one. All we can say is that statistically, these two things tend to fluctuate together. Got it. So really, you're seeing a correlation of some type, but there's no implied causality about what direction anything is going. Right. There's fancier techniques Uh, where you can try to get at causality, but it's difficult with the data that we work with. So... Okay, so there's this kind of pairwise connection of some activity, and that could be measured, I guess, with the fMRI. And then what do you do next with that? So in our first exploration of this, what we were doing essentially was we had a pretty large set of people that were scanned as part of a publicly available project called the Human Connectome Project. So at that point, we were working with data from about 126 individuals. And these people were scanned using fMRI as they did a number of different things. So they were scanned as they were just resting. They were scanned as they were doing a language task. They were scanned as they were doing a memory task. 
they had, I think, nine total conditions that they were scanned in. And so what we did was we were interested to see, so, so people had been using this functional connectivity technique, essentially, to start looking at larger patterns of brain organization. But typically, they had done it in a way that was aggregating data across many individuals. And so we wanted to know whether these functional connectivity matrices or patterns or signatures or whatever you want to call them, whether those were also kind of unique or reliable at the individual level. So we took this data from these 126 people that were scanned as they did all these different things, and we calculated one functional connectivity profile for each person in each scan condition. And then we asked the very simple question of given a profile calculated from one person in one session, can we match that to a profile from the same individual that was calculated from a different set of data as they did a different task maybe, or on a different day? Wow, and you could. And we could, long story short, we could, with accuracy that was quite surprising to us at the time. So fMRI is a pretty noisy technique. It's sort of the best worst technology we have for observing a living, behaving human brain. So it's noisy in a lot of ways. It's imperfect in a lot of ways. And so traditionally, it was thought that you needed to aggregate or average data from many different people in order to see meaningful signal. And so we were interested to see if we could kind of go beyond that a little bit and say, no, actually, there is some uniqueness and some reliability at the single subject level. And the reason that's important is that if we're ever going to use this technology in real world applications. So in clinical applications, for example, or other real world settings, you know, it wouldn't make sense for you to go to your doctor's office and get an fMRI scan and have your doctor average your scan with many other people. You know, we want to be able to make inferences just on the basis of a single individual scan. And so that was kind of the motivation behind this was we saw this as sort of a first step or a proof of principle that there's something that we can pull out from the individual data that is meaningful and that is not just noise and that can be used to characterize people potentially. What this reminds me of a little bit, Emily, is DNA mapping. I've been reading The Codebreaker uh, about Jennifer Doudna, Walter Isaacson's new book, and she's a Nobel Prize winner that is a co-inventor of CRISPR, which is really a revolutionary technology, really, that allows gene editing. Has anyone studied or mapped what you're finding to actual DNA sequencing? Yeah, that's a really good question. There is a lot of good work at the intersection of genetics and neuroimaging. And it's difficult because it's an extremely high dimensional problem. <laughs> so we have very high dimensional data in neuroimaging. And then of course, genomic data is also extremely high dimensional. And so there's definitely some good work going on on that front. And I think it's still really early days. And I'm not as familiar with the cutting edge of that. But I, my sense is that as we're sort of getting to a point where we're building up these databases, because really what you need is you just need a ton of data. I mean, you need data from lots and lots of individuals and you need, you know, both genomics and brain imaging and demographics and behavior, you know, like all of these other variables. And so you you just end up with this massively dimensional data set. And so the challenge is to sort of find the signal in that noise. <laughs> and all of these things are messy and complicated, and there's not necessarily one single factor that's going to be driving everything. So I think we're making progress, but still early days. Yeah, maybe because I have this gene editing mindset from reading this book, the thought comes to mind that in your research, you find these fingerprints where does that come from? How does that happen? Well, DNA is the code for all living organisms. So there's going to be a DNA match and it could be incredibly complicated, but I mean, I would think there would be a DNA match and maybe somewhere down the line, if you discover that certain types of fingerprints lead to, and I think this is part of your interest as well, mental illness and what can we do about it? I think one, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're looking at the fingerprinting and maybe some pattern might be related to a higher risk of 
mental illness, it might enable you to get earlier treatment, for example. And that treatment could be from medications, well, it could be all sorts of things. But in an extreme case, it could be some type of DNA editing. So I'm probably going decades ahead of where we're going to be. But I don't know, do you think if you look in your crystal ball, that's at all a possibility down the line that that would be an eventual logical direction when you combine these two fields together? Yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately our hope, you know, I mean, we hope that this research is going to be practically useful someday. And I think what we're learning is that genes are obviously extremely powerful, you know, and genetics is going to account for a lot of different things. But at the same time, there's stuff that the genetics can't totally account for. So for example, actually, I didn't mention this, but in that first sample of 126 people that we were working with, that sample actually contained 50 sets of twins, both identical and non-identical. So actually 100 of the 126 people in that data set had a twin in the same data set. And that actually made our problem harder because what we were trying to do was match an individual to him or herself, essentially, across right. different time points. And so going into it, we hypothesized that when we made a mistake, or in other words, we didn't get the identity right, that we might be more likely to mistake someone for their twin just because there is so much shared genetic material there. And actually, in that particular study, we didn't find that effect. I mean, our accuracy was quite high. So in some cases, we had a bit of a ceiling effect, but we actually weren't more likely at least based on the functional connectivity, to mistake someone for their twin than for an unrelated person. I wouldn't read too much into that because there's been a lot of other work showing that features of these functional connectivity profiles are heritable to a certain degree, but they're certainly not perfectly heritable. You know, So it's not the case that two people with identical DNA and in the form of identical twins have an identical functional connectivity fingerprint, so to speak. So I think while the genetics can account for a lot, all of the epigenetic phenomena and the life experiences and the different, you know, things that people encounter and experiences that they seek out are also going to leave a fingerprint, so to speak, that's not necessarily encoded in the DNA itself, but that is present in brain functional organization. And so I think ultimately, certainly understanding how these two things relate to one another, but I think ultimately, you know, the genetics is going to play a role, but then there's, I think, an additional portion of the variance, so to speak, that may not be explainable fully by the DNA and that maybe with treatments, I mean, you know, CRISPR and these new technologies are incredibly powerful, as you mentioned. I think there may also be certain roots or, you know, certain issues that are more easily or better treated by directly appealing to the brain. <laughs> and so whether yeah. the stimulation techniques or sort of indirectly with behavioral techniques, which also change the brain. So there's, you know, it's not either or. But yeah, I think Ultimately, that's the goal is to sort of combine all of these things and what we're learning into something that has therapeutic applications. That is so interesting what you just said. It makes complete sense, I guess, because I'm fixated on gene editing. But in fact, there's a plasticity to the brain. And I wonder whether there could be the equivalent of gene editing using behavioral or stimulation techniques. Of course, gene editing is extremely precise. You go into an individual gene, and if you do, I'll just say behavioral editing, even though that's probably not a term, but you know what I'm talking about based on what you just explained, um, that's not nearly as precise because it's a combination of lots of genes, but lots of things that are going on in the brain. But I wonder whether an equivalent of gene editing is going to be possible and whether you and your colleagues, because you're going in this direction, do you have a term for this already? Because I'm getting kind of fond of what I just said off the top of my head, behavioral editing. Tell me that you already talk about that with much better terms than that. 
<laughs> well, I'm certainly not a clinical psychologist and I have all the respect and admiration for the work that they do. But I think certain forms of like cognitive behavioral therapy maybe would fit under that umbrella, you know, so we're getting more precise with our ability to kind of help people help themselves in a way, you know, through changing behavior. And I think, you know, some people perceive attention between the brain-based stuff and the behavior-based stuff. I personally don't. I mean, I think I mean, this quickly gets into the philosophical realm of whether you believe the mind is fully instantiated in the biology of the brain or whether you believe that there's sort of a dualism thing going on where there's a mind that exists independent from its biological substrate. But assuming you sort of subscribe to the view that the physical organ of the brain is giving rise to the mind and to behavior... You know, I think changing behavior does change the brain and vice versa. So changing the brain can change behavior, but changing behavior can also change the brain. And, you know, I think which of those routes is the most efficient is still very much an open question. It might differ for different mental illnesses or different behavioral problems. But certainly we're getting better at understanding where in the brain certain processes are happening, which gives us hope that further down the line we could manipulate those processes when they start to kind of go awry either through directly appealing to the brain itself using stimulation or there's actually another whole field called neurofeedback where people are lying in the scanner and they're performing some task and you're actually feeding activity in certain areas, like activity levels in certain brain areas, you're feeding that back to people in real time and they're actually trying to control activity in their own brain. So they're learning to kind of dampen, so to speak, you know, if there's a brain area that's particularly reactive in anxiety, for example, or OCD or one of those illnesses, you can actually teach people when they see a certain type of stimulus that would induce anxiety or disgust or, you know, any other reaction that's maladaptive or too extreme, people can actually learn to alter their own brain activity by seeing it in real time and employing strategies to kind of decrease that activity. And then the hope is that that would translate to the subjective feeling of being less bothered by these experiences yeah. in the real world. That's very, very cool research. So once you know this fingerprint, what do you want to do? You talked about therapies or therapeutic benefit to this. What have you been doing in your lab that gets to the consequences of knowing and identifying these fingerprints? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually something that I found just kind of funny, I guess, when we first started this work. So when we published that first paper, it did attract a lot of media attention, which was you know a lot of fun for us in some ways. But I had to kind of laugh because, you know, these reporters would call and say, oh my gosh, you know, we can identify people based on patterns of brain activity. What does that mean? And, you know, I would kind of say, well, we can identify people by looking at them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we can identify people based on their actual fingerprints or on their DNA. You know, we don't need to put someone in a brain scanner to know who they are. There's much easier and better ways of doing that. And really, in some ways, the analogy to a fingerprint is not a perfect one, because if you think about, you know, an actual fingerprint on your finger, like the pattern of bumps and ridges on your finger is not necessarily related to something meaningful, right? I mean, it's unique, but it's almost like a barcode in that it's unique, but it's arbitrary. So there's nothing about the pattern of where the ridges are. Or I think most people would believe that there's nothing about the pattern of the ridges that actually relates to personality or cognitive abilities or risk for mental illness or other things like that. So... The part that we've always been most interested in, in my previous labs and now in my own lab, is sort of not so much the fact that these are unique just in and of themselves, but what they can tell us in terms of 
you know, what can we get out of this data that could take us beyond what we can get from the standard batteries that we use in psychology and psychiatry? So can the brain actually tell us something more about your present or future risk for a mental illness, for example, than we can get from these other sources of data that we have on people? And so one thing that we're interested in right now in the lab so I mentioned a little bit that in that first study, we were using data acquired as people were doing different things. A lot of the tasks that we use in psychology tend to be pretty artificial, pretty highly controlled. So it's sort of individual pictures flashing one at a time, and your task is to press a button every time you see it. It's pretty unrealistic when you think about how the brain operates in the real world, right? So one of the things that I've gotten really interested in is these so-called naturalistic paradigms. And that's just a fancy way of saying we've actually started playing movies for people while they're in the scanner, having them listen to stories or podcasts or things that are more naturalistic, so to speak, or more engaging, richer, more dynamic, you know, more evocative of how the brain is actually used in the real world. And the signals that we get from those are really, really rich. And so people's brains will, in some ways, synchronize. So when two people watch the same movie or listen to the same story, you see a lot of synchrony in terms of how brains are processing that experience. But in other ways, you also see idiosyncrasies. So different people have different reactions, you know, at different moments or to different features. And so we analogize that to a stress test for the brain. <laughs> so if you use a movie with a lot of strong emotion, potentially you could start to pull out differences in how people react to those emotions. And something in the pattern of brain activity as people watch these evocative films could relate to their own tendency for negative affect, rumination, anxiety, paranoia, all of these things that, you know, in their extreme might confer risk for a mental illness. So that's one area that we're pursuing wow. at the moment. So this is maybe a bit more of a geeky question for you, Emily. I'm thinking of you, know, you talk about human connectivity and you're measuring this and it's really kind of complicated. I'm wondering, what is that measure? Is there a way to describe it that we understand it? You could think about all kinds of measures in different walks of life, but this is a complicated one. What is the measure? Yeah, I mean, at its heart, it's really just correlations. It's just kind of a massive set of correlations that describe how your particular set of brain regions tend to activate and so if you think about region A and region B, you know, maybe in my brain, those two regions don't really have much to do with each other. But in your brain, they're actually quite strongly coupled. And so when region A is active, region B also tends to be active. And then when one is lower, the other one is lower too. And I like to kind of analogize it to an orchestra or some kind of musical group. So you can think about each player individually and, you know, now they're playing more loudly and now they're playing more softly. Maybe now they're not playing at all, you know, depending on where you are in the piece. And that was sort of the traditional way of looking at these data was, you know, who's playing loudest at this given moment. Whereas with functional connectivity, what we're looking at is not who's playing loudest on their own, but who tends to play at similar times, you know. So if you and I are loud at the same time and we're soft at the same time and then maybe we're totally silent for this other portion, then we're going to have a stronger functional connection, so to speak. And so the musicians are metaphors for brain regions. And so we're basically calculating all of those correlations across the whole brain. And that's what we call the fingerprint. Are there measures of overall connectivity for our brains? That some people just have a lot of action going on and others less? Yeah, all of these measures, I mean, one of the challenges is these measures are sort of inherently relative, you know, so correlation is sort of independent of the original units of the data, right? And so there's a lot of ways to kind of characterize or at least try to characterize what's going on at a whole brain level. So you can certainly look at overall levels of correlation across all of the different pairs. 
There's also some really interesting work that borrows from graph theory or network analysis in math and in other computational Mm -hmm. fields where you're actually characterizing the network as a whole. And, you know, the analogies for that tend to be things like airport hubs, you know, so can you actually determine which brain regions are sort of more central to the network? It's kind of like the biggest airports where if you want to get from the upper valley to somewhere on the other side of the world, good luck luck with that. (laughs) probably have to make a stop in a hub, right? And so you, you can treat the brain network in the same way and you can characterize it in terms of its network architecture and you can figure out, okay, maybe in my brain, you know, region A is the central hub, but in your brain, region B is a central hub. And so what does that mean? And who are those regions talking to? And can we get an overall picture of the network? Yeah. I mean, I see this giant, fascinating research agenda where you have this brain as this atlas, and even the atlas could be measured in different ways as you described before or assessed in different ways. And there's all these patterns of activity and the analogies that you mentioned from hubs to, you know, orchestra are all really interesting. And then how did it become that way in the first place? And I said, gene editing, you pointed out obviously about the behavioral side and epigenetic phenomenon and the fact that it could change and does change under different circumstances. And then what are the consequences of what these patterns are? That's more than a lifetime's work. And I suspect a lot of people in your entire field, that's the gigantic, very meta agenda and different people tackle different parts of that world. Yes, that is a good way to summarize it. And that's very true. We have a lot of work to do. So hopefully we'll we'll all (laughs) be in a job for a while. I hope so too. So you have a study that came out recently, you mentioned movie watching. And the headline is another one. You can have a bit of a knack for this, I think. The headlines that get people's attention. Movie watching outperforms rest for functional connectivity. What's up with that? Yeah, so with functional connectivity, a lot of times when people measure functional connectivity, they do it while people aren't necessarily doing anything at all. (laughs) So traditionally with fMRI, I sort of mentioned a little bit these cognitive tasks that we would give people that would be like pretty constrained, pretty controlled, not necessarily representative of how we use our brains in everyday life. That was kind of the first wave of functional neuroimaging in humans. The second wave was this idea of resting state, which became really, really powerful. And people noticed that even if you just have people lie in a scanner and do nothing at all, there's this kind of spontaneous or self-generated activity that happens. Of course, we know just from introspection that, you know, rarely are you just doing nothing. (laughs) You know, in, in a quiet moment, you're probably reflecting on what happened earlier that day. You're thinking about plans, you know, for the upcoming, the rest of the day. You're thinking about your social relationships. You're running through your to-do list. You know, you're there's all sorts of things that you're doing at rest, right? (laughs) But if we're not measuring that, we don't really know what's going on. So in many ways, you can observe this functional connectivity as people just lie and rest and do nothing in particular. But there could be a lot of differences between individuals in terms of what people are doing or thinking about during those times. And those differences are interesting in and of themselves. But actually, empirically, we've been finding that giving everybody sort of the same thing to do, so to speak, in the sense of giving them a movie to watch, turns out that it sort of tweaks these functional connectivity profiles in a way that makes them more related to behavior outside the scanner. And the behaviors we were looking at in that particular study were a measure of overall cognitive ability, so kind of like an IQ measure, and then also a measure of emotional tendencies. So generally how positive or negative people tend to feel, the strength of their social relationships and things like that. So again, I guess I come back to this analogy of a stress test, which, you know, so in something like cardiology, if you just have people sitting in an armchair, you might not pick up on, you know, an abnormal heart rhythm. But if you have them run on a treadmill, 
all of a sudden you can potentially see differences or abnormalities that aren't there at rest. And I, I think of the movies in a similar way of, you know, a lot of the information is there at rest, but by giving a movie, you kind of push people into a certain state that brings out these relationships to the behavioral measures that we care about. Right. If somebody's watching a movie, that starts to, I don't know if I should say dominate, but it's going to have a bigger impact on the brain functioning. If you have nothing, as in rest, there's gigantic variation of what people are going to be doing. So in a way, you're narrowing down the range of possible things that you might, I don't know if this is true, but that's my intuition on the range of possible things that you might see, because now everyone's doing the same thing. That's actually yeah. exactly how I tend to talk about it. So I think of the movies like a lens almost that we can mm. project people through. And so there's less variability overall, but the variability that remains is more meaningful. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you about privacy. As we begin to figure out and map out each of our individual brains, and same issue is obviously relevant for genetic testing as well. Is this something that you think about or others have started to think about? I, mean, I know the research is still somewhat early, but if it was known that I had a brain that was susceptible to a certain type of illness, my insurance company would find that rather interesting to know about. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I think about this all the time, and especially when we try to communicate these things to lay audiences. I think this is an incredibly important issue. And actually, again, like the press coverage of the first fingerprinting paper was a little bit unsettling in some ways. And it's understandable. I mean, in a lot of ways, this brings up concerns. And a lot of the reporters were kind of interested in, well, how could this be used against us <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, at that point, I was sort of in the happy or unhappy position of saying, well, you know, none of our so-called predictions are anywhere near good enough to be rolled out in the real world. You know, we're seeing statistical significance here, but we're far off from being able to use this in a real world way. But obviously, you know, that's where we're hoping to get to. But I think it's going to require a really, really careful consideration of when and why do we acquire this information? Who has access to this information? So we've talked a lot about clinical applications, but there's also potential applications in education. So, you know, can you predict who will have a learning disability? Can you intervene sooner? But, you know, with all of that, the fear is that these things become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, we build something that tells us who's going to develop schizophrenia or, you know, who's going to struggle in school. And, you know, we run that on kids and then all of a sudden we get this stratification. And, you know, that's absolutely something that we need to be really careful with the ethics on that. I don't have a good answer right now, but it's something that's always on my mind. And I think it's something that's going to require some real proactive and strategic thought and, you know, collaboration with policymakers and ethicists and people that can help guide this and make sure that this technology is used for good mm -hmm. <laughs> and not evil. Once again, that's a place where because you know, genetic research is further along in terms of practical impact. That's a place where there's been a lot of discussion among leading biologists, chemists, and geneticists on these ethical issues and what are the right rules of the road. You don't want to constrain things so you can't keep doing research that could be making very important discoveries. But on the other hand, the power of what you can do with gene editing and the ease of it today is so enormous. Again, you're not in the same place in terms of neuroscience, but it's possible somewhere down the line that could be something similar. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we'll be watching closely, you know, what happens with the gene editing field, because I think that'll be an interesting roadmap for, you know, as you say, I think we're a few decades at least behind them. But, you know, the hope would be that we get to something useful someday. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah. And learn from the things that have not gone so well there yes. um, as well. So, Emily, we've had a great conversation. I want to ask you one last question as we wrap up. It's kind of my my advice question, but it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to the 
let's say, 21-year-old Emily Finn and lean over and say, you know, Emily, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to think about, if there's one thing you want to do, or if there's one mistake you don't want to make, <laughs> what would it be? What would be that bit of advice you'd give to yourself when you're just starting off? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm thrilled to have ended up in the academic career that I now have, and I'm hopeful that I can continue in it. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, one thing I would tell myself back then is just to be curious and pay attention. Like so much of what drives my research these days, even though it may not have completely sounded like it from this conversation, but I mean, a lot of where I draw inspiration from is just observing other people. I mean, psychology and neuroscience at its heart is the study of ourselves, you know? So observing myself, noticing things about myself, noticing things about other people, noticing how I interact with other people, how other people interact with each other. I think all of what we're doing, I mean, it sounds sort of lofty and abstract, but, you know, ultimately it's grounded in humans and human beings and their behavior. And the point of a brain and a nervous system is to drive behavior. And the point of behavior is for us to get the resources that we need to survive, but also to have, you know, a happy and fulfilling life. And I think there's a lot of inspiration you can draw just from sort of living in the world and observing yourself critically, observing other people critically and letting that kind of be the inspiration for and, and driving your big scientific questions. And I'm not sure, I guess when I think about my 21 year old self, <laughs> I wasn't totally sure where my career would take me and all of this. But you know, looking back all of those experiences and just meeting different people being in different situations, it gives you this big picture of humanity that I think is really important to keep in mind with all of the stuff that we're driving at in the lab. I think it's a great answer to this question. I mean, it's very thoughtful. It also reminds me a little bit of some of the great scientists in history. As much time as they spent in the lab or you know, in front of the blackboard or wherever they were or in the field, they knew about the world. They thought about humanity. I mean, you consider someone like Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winner in physics, a genius. He wrote many books for a lay audience, and he was just curious about the world, and he interacted with the world. And it helped inform his research, but it also helped him enjoy the process of doing research. And I imagine it's not that easy to do that, as you describe that, because being a scientist, being a researcher, it's a lot of work and it's very technical, it's very detailed. You're in the lab and it's sometimes easy to forget you're in the real world too. And that can inform, especially for you, I would think, you know, studying the brain. Of course, that will inform how you think about your own research and your own work. So yeah. thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from this episode. And yeah, I wish you continued great success and hope to check in somewhere down the line on some of your new research. Yeah, thanks. This has been a lot of fun and, and hope to see you on campus one of these days when we're back to normal. So Yes, one of these days. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>